Good evening. After about a year after I was ordained, uh, I was getting into the practice. I was practicing very earnestly and diligently with a lot of effort. And then there was this moment of hitting this wall. And part of hitting this wall was this, this uh, you could say, the stark realization that what was actually fueling my diligence and my effort was actually a sense of unworthiness, a sense that there's something wrong with me. You could say a sense of lack. And there was this dynamic going on that I started to realize. And the dynamic was, this would be one version of it, is there, I'd be practicing diligently and then there'd be maybe the experience of having really strong mindfulness. And underneath that, and this wasn't a fully formed thought, but it was like, oh, this is, this is who I want to be. <laughs> this is the self I want. This is what I'm looking for. This is why I'm practicing. Strong mindfulness. And then what would happen is then that would fade away, that would disappear, and maybe there would just be some moments of mindlessness, or it would be more difficult, there would be a lot of aversion, and then, boom, I'd be right back into the sense of lack. And then there would be this confirmation of, oh, there really is something wrong with me. Oh, I really am unworthy. And then going through that phase, and then it would be like, okay, so let me see if I can really practice to get out of this again so that I can come back to this place that I want to be. And then the cycle would continue again and again and again. And what was happening is this was reinforcing my sense of unworthiness. I was actually using the practice as a way of, one, beating myself up, and using the language that we've been using here, Annie spoke about this a couple of weeks ago, uh, the cycle of becoming. This was the, the hamster wheel, the wheel of, of becoming, being fueled by unworthiness. He might hear in this, it was a drag. <laughs> And it was as if underneath it was this the sense of if I practice hard enough, maybe I can be a person who feels like they're good enough and I don't have to feel like I'm not good enough. Maybe you've experienced some version of this, of seeing how unworthiness or judgment, self-judgment can arise And this is what I want to share with you tonight is, is just a little bit more about this dynamic, the dynamic around uh, a sense of, of lack or unworthiness. This sense of, I'm putting in this broader context, a particular flavor of becoming. And then also ways to navigate it. And also to point out how subtle it can be and how being able to see the subtlety of it can also allow the practice to unfold more deeply. For example, later on I'll be sharing with you this, this realization that Ajahn Sumedho had that 
he was realizing underneath his practice was this subtle sense of becoming, this subtle assumption, which he calls, it was like the thought of, I am somebody who needs to do something in order to become enlightened in the future. Right? I'm somebody, I need to do something, so I'll come on retreat, in order to become enlightened in the future in some point. It's a pretty common thought. <laughs> but there's a construct of fabrication underneath it, and it can be so wonderful to begin to see that. Again, this dynamic, the dynamic of unworthiness or something's wrong with me. And specifically, if you uh, start to, to notice it, you might, want, you might notice that it is, can form around an idea or around an experience. It can be even formed around a wholesome aspiration, an aspiration to be kinder, to be calmer, to be more mindful. You fill in the blank. So that can fuel the hamster wheel. It can also be around an experience. You're on retreat here and you have some experience of, of, of deep equanimity, of, of strong mindfulness, of profound tranquility. And then there's the grasping that forms a self around it. Ooh, this is who I want to be. And it might not be a fully formed thought. And then it's the hamster wheel of needing more of it. And if you don't get more of it, then so there's something wrong with you. Or if you're not in that state, then there's something wrong with you. Noticing this dynamic, the wheel, the wheel of unworthiness, and using the practice to reinforce it. And I want to point out, a wholesome, the wholesome, pleasant experience isn't the problem. Wholesome, pleasant experiences, they're wonderful. We want to cultivate them. We want to skillfully savor them, to nurture them. But without, without getting hooked by this dynamic. An aspiration, aspirations are beautiful. So important. But without the entanglement. And you might notice around this, around this sense of lack or unworthiness, there's, there's sometimes a kind of habitual thought patterns that come around this. The habitual thought patterns of self-judgment. And maybe you've experienced this. You look around and you look at the other yogis and you think, wow, everyone else is really doing this retreat. <laughs> And I'm just stumbling and flailing along. I'm just faking it. And you can have this feeling as if everyone else is really doing it and you're the one that's faking it here. And underneath that, wow, there must be something wrong with me. I'm doing it wrong. I've noticed also it can take, it can switch to the opposite 
where my mind's not hooked in self-judgment. It's, it's like the swimming in the judgment of others. And it can take the sense of being above everyone. Wow, I'm so much better than these other yogis. <laughs> I'm sitting still and quiet. And it's the mind that can see everything wrong with everyone else. One place I, I saw this when I was on retreat is, especially around Dharma talks, I could pick out, it was almost like the, the exact words the teachers should not be saying. <laughs> I could have come up with a whole list of every single point where they were wrong. <laughs> and the reason I knew I was hooked is because my mind was spinning about it. It was like this huge a self-righteous anger that, that the mind just couldn't let go of. It's unbelievable. Because there was something wrong with them. And I really wanted to point it out to them. <laughs> Maybe you've had a similar experience. And again, the litmus thing is, is if my mind is so hooked that I'm spinning and spinning and spinning about it, then something's going on other than wise discernment. And when I say this, also, it's an invitation not to let go of wise discernment. When you hear a Dharma talk, it's also having this, this skill, and I really mean that it's a skill, the skill to wisely discern what's useful in a Dharma talk for you and what's not. And you take what's useful and you leave the rest behind. And that's a skill to really use your discernment to, to make sure that you're, you're supporting your practice in a skillful way. That's different than the obsessive judgment. But for me, it's still, there's something underneath it. There's a sense of self that feels threatened by what's being said. And then there's the judgment. And not only that, it, this, this sense of unworthiness or the sense of lack can pervade into our sense of what awakening is. There's a, there's a wonderful essay by the psychologist, uh, maybe psychiatrist, Jack Engler, called Promises and Perils on the Path, where he's trying to look at some of the, the shadow side of, of what can be at play when we uh, engage in this practice. And he's talking about these different issues that can get entangled about our view of the path. And this is one of these issues, which he calls a quest for perfection and invulnerability, which I think you'll hear is really intertwined with this, again, with this sense of lack of a practice being fueled by a sense of lack. He says, enlightenment can be imagined as a heaven-sent embodiment of a core Western narcissistic ideal. This is kind of the bad news. We'll get to the good news, don't worry. (laughs) A state of personal perfection from which all our badness, all our faults, and defilements have been expelled. A state in which we will finally become self-sufficient, not needing anyone or anything, above criticism and reproach, and above all, immune to further hurts or disappointments. Wouldn't it be cool if some state like that existed out there? <laughs> Came the wrong place, I'm sorry. 
And then he continues, he says, practice can be motivated in part by this secret wish to be special, if not superior. Enlightenment will finally elicit the acknowledgement and admiration that have been lacking. And because narcissistic issues are so pervasive in character development and across every level of functioning, this is usually the most important of the issues. You can say of the issues that penetrate our practice. It's important to peel back and, and to see some of to see some of this. To see how a sense of lack can begin fueling um, an uh, an unrealistic view of what this 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 thing called awakening is about. It's not about becoming some special person or superior or a place of some kind of in, uh, you know invulnerable perfection. We're not here to become inhuman. We're here to simply free this human heart. And the roots of it, the roots of it, really you can see that we sometimes inherit this from, from family and society around the story, stories around success and what we get affirmed around. And the poet Billy Collins, in his usual wit, has a, 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 a striking poem about this, about the subtle messages that we can sometimes get from our family. And the title of the poem is My Favorite 17-Year-Old High School Girl. And I want to frame it for you a little bit so you get a sense of it. If, to get a sense of the understanding of the poem, if you imagine that here's this parent who's speaking to their 17-year-old daughter. And this is what the parent is saying. Do you realize that if you had started building the Parthenon on the day you were born, you would be all done in only one more year? Of course, you could have done that all alone. So never mind, you're fine just being yourself. You're loved just for being you. But did you know that at your age, Judy Garland was pulling down $150,000 a picture? Joan of Arc was leading the French army to victory, and Blaise Pascal had cleaned up his room? No, wait, I mean, he had invented the calculator. <laughs> of course, there will be time for all that later in your life, out of, after you come out of your room and begin to blossom, or at least pick up all your socks. For some reason, I keep remembering that Lady Jane Grey was the Queen of England when she was only 15. But then she was beheaded, so never mind her as a role model. (laughs) A few centuries later, when he was your age, Franz Schubert was doing the dishes for his family, but that did not keep him from composing two symphonies, four operas, and two complete masses as a youngster. But of course, that was in Austria at the height of romantic lyricism, not here in the suburbs of Cleveland. Frankly, who cares if Annie Oakley was a crack shot at 15 or if Maria Callas debuted as Tosca at 17? We think you're special just being you. 
<laughs> playing with your food and staring into space. By the way, I lied about Schubert doing the dishes, but that doesn't mean he never helped out around the house. So yeah, sometimes we get these subtle messages. (laughs) David Loy actually writes quite a bit about how the sense of lack not only happens on the individual level, but on the collective level, level that it's that pervasive. Never enough, a sense of lack, never having enough in terms of the rampant consumerism that arises, or in terms of how corporations are structured. Here in the United States, in particular, he talks about how we're never safe enough pointing out the buildup again and again and again of, um, uh, of the military and the military institutions. Or the fact that we're never safe enough in this country and how that's connected with that we have the highest incarceration rate in the world. So collectively and individually, this, this can drive the way we are in the world. And and even if this kind of wounding isn't something that you see in your practice or isn't uh, strong, there can still be the subtlety, the subtlety of how we bring a subtle sense of, of becoming into the practice. This is from Ajahn Sumedho, what I was referring to. He said, when I started practicing meditation, I felt I was somebody who was very confused. And I wanted to get out of this confusion and get rid of my problems and become someone who was not confused, someone who was a clear thinker, someone who would maybe one day become enlightened. That was the impetus that got me going in the direction of Buddhist meditation and monastic life. But then by reflecting on this position that I am somebody who needs to do something I began to see it as a created condition. You can say as a fabrication of the mind, a kind of story in the mind. He continues, he says, I began to see that I am somebody, I began to see that this notion, I am somebody who needs to do something in order to become enlightened in the future was an assumption that I'd merely created. So I want to point out, this is a pretty central way of how we see ourselves in the world. I'm somebody who needs to do something. And often what underlies the sense of I'm somebody who needs to do something to get enlightened in the future is the sense that you begin your practice on this path and it has a a beginning point to it. And then you travel along this path in a linear way, cultivating mindfulness and kindness and concentration. And you learn the skill of of meditating, 
That's what we're doing here. And then, as the story goes, these wholesome states get weakened. And not only a weakened, but as the path unfolds, they finally get eradicated. And when these wholesome states of mind get eradicated, that is the heart's release. That is awakening. And maybe this happens in a lifetime or over many lifetimes. So the story goes. And I want to point out, I actually love this story. It's a great model. It's a great frame. It's very, very helpful. And it can get entangled in this quality of becoming somebody. In these ways, I've been talking about it. And I want to point out that the, these assumptions or these, this entanglement is not inherent in the story itself. The story can be very helpful. This is the story of cultivation and abandonment that we're sharing with you again and again and again. Cultivating that which is wholesome, abandoning that which is unwholesome. But you might hear, sometimes when we hear a linear path, then we, we create these fabrications of I am somebody that needs to travel along it, and then I get to finally get to a point of awakening. So how to be free from all this? How to see it? And I want to go back to what I'm going to call the tough stuff. The tough stuff of the, the more entrenched quality of self-judgment that can arise on a retreat. Or the deep sense of unworthiness that can move into our experience. And to go back to a, a phrase that Rebecca used that I so, so appreciated, the, the cultivating this, this tender heart which is so important when, when we feel flooded or uh, overwhelmed by this feeling of self-judgment. One of the first things I need to do is I need to remind myself of the potential that's in that struggle, the potential that's in navigating that particular flavor of dukkha. And sometimes what I bring to mind is an idea that comes from uh, the, the late writer, philosopher, Christian mystic, uh, Simone Weil. And she, she's a Christian mystic, and she would talk a lot about her pain upon her, in her spiritual path was the sense of feeling separate from the divine, something that tore at her. And then she began to realize that it was the, the, the quality of separation is the link. So this paradoxical, paradoxical quality of the separation is, to, is the link. So the separation is the, the link for her to the divine. For us, it could be the separation is to, to the link to, to the deepening of this practice. And she gave this wonderful image to describe this. She said, imagine there are these two prisoners in prison cells, and that which is separating them is a wall. The wall is what separates them. It is the separation. 
And yet over time, what the prisoners begin to do is they begin to utilize the wall. They begin to tap on the wall. And the wall then becomes the link, the link for their communication. It actually becomes their connection. So what started off as their separation actually links them and connects them. How does this work around a sense of lack or self-judgment? I don't know if I would have truly known the power of unconditionally loving myself if I didn't struggle with self-judgment. I don't think I really would have gotten the power of it. And not only loving myself and others, and understanding what others go through. And of course, I wouldn't wish upon anyone kind of the pain that comes from unworthiness. And yet, in a strange way, I'm now grateful for it. It started to become the link for me. That which was separating me from kindness and compassion started to reveal to me the power and the depth of it. I'm so grateful for that. Such an important piece of my path has been that struggle and the skill and allowing the skill to navigate those difficult states. The separation, the separation in your practice is the link. So how, how to, how to navigate these difficult states of mind? One general thing that some of you might find helpful, and, and I came upon this really from working with yogis on retreat, that some yogis, I don't know if this was a Southwest thing, so it always seemed like when I was leading a retreat in the Southwest, um, a few yogis every so often would report this to me, and it wasn't like they knew each other, so it was, it was really quite interesting they would say something like, for me, the gateway into um, continuous practice is not remembering to, to have the willingness to be present moment after moment. It's remembering to be kind moment after moment. And then what comes, what follows, is presence is right there. And so for them, it wasn't really helpful to have, have the, the practice being framed or situated around awareness but having it situated around kindness or acceptance is really allowed for this continuity, allowed for, as Joseph said, the each step. I I found this quite fascinating. And and especially for, and when I tried it on, especially for difficult things, I found it a a wonderful uh, tool to have to lead with that flavor and allow presence to follow. And then in particular, some things that can be helpful to remember is when I find my mind in a state of that harsh self-judgment or that sense of unworthiness or sense of lack, what's important for me is to simply go to this quality of self-compassion, to really keep it simple at that point, to feel the ouch of that. And for me, what's important and really has been 
one of the essential keys for navigating through this is sensation, is feeling it in the body. It gives a place for me to have a quality of presence and a quality of kindness. And it's simply feeling it with a quality of kindness. And it helps prevent getting lost in the figuring out or the fixing. And that's enough, just keeping it simple, just that quality of of self-compassion and being with it, allowing it to move through. And then if there's a little more capacity feeling the fabric of it, what I mean by the fabric of it is what I've been saying is the sensations that accompany it, the emotional quality, noticing thought but not believing them and not getting allured by them. And so that's what I want to take a little bit of time with now is also how to relate to the thoughts that come with this. Sometimes what is in the midst of self-judgment, any, any kind of harsh judgment like this or the sense of lack, what I've noticed is a habitual kind of thinking that, that just kind of seems to have a repetitive quality to it. And especially if you've seen these thought patterns before again and again and again, and they might have a different theme, but it's the same flavor, I have found that at times it can be helpful to be firm with them. A a, a clear firmness rather than the firmness of aversion. Which is this statement of, that's enough. Where I'm basically saying, I'm not going to go around, go down the, the, the road of thought on this one anymore. So a bit of firmness. And then what I do is I still am open to the emotional quality and the sensation quality. Because even for me, what I notice, if, if, even if I say that's enough, still, it, it, to me, this is such a, a visceral experience and such a deep visceral experience. I can still be with, with, with it in terms of sensation and emotion. The firmness can help. It reminds me of, of um, a few years ago, my wife and I decided to make this commitment to one another. We were noticing we would come home, and at times we would be in this kind of gossipy way of talking about the people we, we knew. And so we had this pact that we weren't going to do that. And it was just nice to have the support of another person where there was that impulse. And, and gossip can be so seductive. Do you know the, the seductive feeling of it? And just to say, no, not here. Enough. That's enough. That's not going to happen here. So freeing. There's a place for this in a relationship to our thoughts. And of course, you're going to notice at times this is going to work and not work. (laughs) If it worked all the time, this practice would be so much easier. (laughs) So I do want to acknowledge that. When I share with you these ways of navigating it, of course it's going to be within the mess of the way meditation can be. And then I just want to name also... um, and for some of you might have experienced what I call the nosedive into shame and self-judgment or unworthiness, which can happen. In the past, when I've experienced that, 
what helps is a broadening of awareness to have a very kind of broad space that I'm in. And what I mean by that is, for example, going for a walk at a regular pace where I'm, take, pace where I'm taking in kind of the spacious quality of the outdoors can be such a, a wonderful environment to, to hold this and be with something like this in these ways that I'm describing. For other people, what brings a quality of spaciousness is having a cup of tea or something that's comforting to balance out and to help support this being with. So may that help with the tough stuff. What about the subtlety of, though, of I am somebody who needs to do something to get enlightened in the future? How do we navigate this, this construct? Because it can feel like this is the way we understand the world. This is the way we understand our lives. And Ajahn Sumedho continues with this. He, he, he gives his approach to this. Around this phrase, I am somebody who needs to do something in order to become enlightened in the future. He says, just by recognizing this as an assumption I created, that which is aware knows it is something created out of ignorance, out of not understanding. When we see and recognize this fully, then we stop creating the assumptions. It's just the simple recognition that it's a fabrication, that it's an assumption. How do I recognize it as an assumption? It's the practice that we've been sharing with you. Sometimes it's as simple as saying thinking. It's just a thought. This too is just a thought. And I find that that seeing this, this kind of subtle and pervasive assumption as just a thought is so liberating. Because sometimes there can even be a, a sense of how my mind is constructing experience even around the unfolding of time and space. And there's that moment the moment of seeing the fabrication. It's that simple. Thinking. Fabrication. It's actually just a story that the mind has created about experience. That's all it is. It's a story that practice unfolds in a linear way. It's a great story, as I said, an effective story, a story that we'll be using often here, but it's just a story. There's something different about being here right now that's different than that story. There's something different about seeing that as a fabrication. And when I say this, it doesn't mean that we are here to get rid of all these stories. We're here to see them and, of course, to skillfully utilize them to maybe help frame our practice at times. This comes up in uh, the Potapada Sutta, uh, 
the Buddha is having this, this conversation with uh, Chitta, the elephant trainer. And Chitta's going on about all these different kinds of selves. It's, it's actually really difficult to follow. You're just like, oh my God, I can't believe the convoluted thinking around this kind of self and that kind of self. And this kind of category and, this, and all these different categories. And it's interesting what, what uh, the Buddha says to Chitta. He says, Chitta, these are merely names, expressions, turns of speech, designations in common use in the world, which the Tathagata uses without misapprehending them. Can we do this? Can we be aware of the constructs, the assumptions that the mind makes? Can we utilize them at times, but without misapprehending them, without taking them for this is the way it is? Sometimes what helps me get the sense of cutting through these very subtle assumptions, these very subtle constructs, is again a phrase that, that Ajahn Sumedho uses, which to me evokes a quality of the immediacy of this practice. He uses the phrase, the Buddha knowing the Dhamma. That when you practice in this moment, for example, hearing the sound of my voice coming and going, it's the activity of Buddha knowing Dhamma. Right now, this, hearing the sound of my voice coming and going, it's wakefulness knowing impermanence. It's actually not me being aware. There is a knowing, and it knows impermanence. It's very simple, immediate, and sometimes you can get a feeling sense of that, which I find relieving. It gives a quality of spaciousness to this practice that helps me step out of some of these constructs that I get hooked by, especially the constructs around a sense of, a sense of lack or that I'm going to become somebody perfect. Because in, in, this, in this story that the, the, the Ajahn Sumedho is giving us is that wakefulness, the heart of wakefulness, the heart of the Buddha is happening right in this moment. And it's knowing the Dhamma. Can you begin to rest in that? To have confidence in that? And to keep practice that simple? the Buddha knowing the Dhamma. Sometimes I, I find it helpful, and I get this from James Baraz, is, is another angle on this, is to imagine that it's the Buddha or Kuan Yin labeling, thinking, hearing, seeing. To me, it brings a quality of equanimity a steadiness of just seeing experience, stepping out of the entanglement. The Buddha knowing the Dhamma, or Kuan Yin knowing Dhamma.
I'd like to share a different story about the unfolding of the path. Again, it's just a story. Another fabrication, but one that might be helpful. And it comes from later Buddhism. It comes from the Lotus Sutra. And it's a parable. And the parable is this story. It's the story of this mother and her son. And and the mother comes from, in the parable, of nobility, of great wealth. And the son at a very young age somehow gets separated from his mother and ends up living in these other countries far away and spends many, many years of his life wandering from town to town, seeking food, looking for work, and seeking shelter, and then moving on to the other town. And after many years of this life, he stumbles back into the country where his mother is living, not knowing this, just still wandering after so many years. And one day he's passing by the gates of his mother's grand estate and she sees him and is so excited. Ah, here, here is my lost son. And so she sends out her messengers to come and get him. But when the messengers come to her son, he's incredibly frightened to have these these people from this estate of nobility come to him and he feels like he's done something wrong, that they must be after him, that they're treating him maybe as some kind of criminal and he runs away in fear. And the mother realizes, wow, this this approach is not going to work. There's too much fear. He just, he doesn't understand. He doesn't understand where he comes from. It's too much for him. So she devises this plan and has some of her workers go out into the village, into the town, and find him. And they offer him a job. Please, please come work here. There's a job. You can uh, dig dirt here and we'll pay you this much, much, and then you get lodging here. And so he comes. They they pay him well. He's excited to have a job, to be fed, and to be paid. And the years go on and on where he's simply in this job, but now beginning to gradually come into his mother's estate, not knowing it, but living there. And she disguises herself over these years as just another worker to begin to make contact with him, a contact that's within his capacity to feel contact with the beginning glimpses of nobility and this great wealth that he can begin to be comfortable with. And the years go on and she gradually shows to him that she is this woman of of more and more of this great nobility and this great wealth. And gradually he can take in that here is this woman that is like this and this connection. And then close to her death, she finally reveals to him that indeed, I am your mother and all of this, all of this nobility and wealth is yours. And it's then that he has this realization, oh, this nobility and this wealth is my birthright. I didn't have to become anyone 
to claim this nobility, to claim this wealth. I just didn't have the capacity to see it. It's the same thing for us. Coming into rest in this nobility, in this wealth of seeing clearly. The nobility of simply knowing, of simple awareness. To start to become confident in this true home, not those false homes that we're always looking for, but in this true home of resting. And according to the story, it's, the problem is we just don't have the capacity to take that in. It's not because there's something wrong with you or that you're flawed in any kind of way. It's because we believe that. It's just that we're entangled in a bunch of habitual conditioning that's trying to convince us otherwise. So not becoming, just finding, finding this home. Finally resting in this seeing clearly, in this Buddha knowing the Dhamma again and again and again. I find this story so helpful for my practice at times because it gives me a sense of simply resting in awareness rather than having to cultivate it. And again, I, I, love, I love the cultivation story too, don't get me wrong. But I love to have the ability to switch the story to help me out. And the, the simply resting in awareness can really bring a quality of ease to my meditation. It can be a helpful story. Do the stories contradict? Maybe as Walt Whitman says, says, do I contradict myself? Very well then, I contradict myself. I am vast. I contain multitudes. I've found it such a relief to be able to live in a world that I don't have to make sense of. I can have contradictory stories that lead me to awakening. And then this home, this home of awareness itself. I appreciated your questions this morning. We got into it a little bit this morning. <laughs> of this, and, and I, I want to say a little bit about this home, this home of awareness. And for me, it might be different for others. To me, I do find this home of awareness, it's a trip. <laughs> there's something mysterious about it. And there's all kinds of things written about it. So many different viewpoints, even what you find in early Buddhism. And I try to hold it within this mystery and, and become curious about it. And I think it can be interesting to start to get a sense of this home of awareness 
and the different flavors that can be there. Because the different flavors, I feel, can lead to, and the reason why I, I want to share with you the different flavors is not because I'm trying to convince you of some metaphysical system or some philosophical system. And there's a lot written out there about philosophical systems around the nature of awareness. But more because uh, for your practice, for your freedom, for liberation. I'm so appreciative that Greg spoke about in that wonderful preamble. I love Greg's preambles. (laughs) Aren't they great? (laughs) I look forward to them. And in one of them, we had being exposed to the vastness of the stars and really, to me, the mystery of it all. And light. And he said, you know, how light sometimes can be seen as a particle and sometimes as a wave. And sometimes that helps, uh, that story is something that I bring to awareness. That sometimes in my practice, sometimes there's a feeling sense of, of awareness having this, I wouldn't say particle quality, but something like a particle quality where um, it's the way I was speaking about it this morning, where, where consciousness is dependent upon experience. It's dependent upon, um, for example, a, a, an object that's being seen and also the organ of seeing. And when these three come together, there's a moment of contact. And sometimes when there's this cultivation of noticing moment-to-moment experience, it's as if awareness, the knowing quality, is coming and going. It's unfolding. It's impermanent. And that vision is so helpful because the knowing quality, can, it can be so easy to identify with it since it's such a subtle aspect of experience. And to notice the flickering of it can help undermine the sense of self that can come with a quality of awareness. And then the other way I was sharing with you about awareness being... And when I say awareness, this ability to know experience. And this awareness that sometimes I can get a feeling sense of more when in, in a practice of what I'd call open awareness, where it's simply this, this uh, openness of the practice and just allowing objects of experience to arise and pass away, allowing phenomena to move through. And this is the vastness of being aware. And within that, sometimes there's these flavors that we notice. As Ajahn Mahabua says, and Ajahn Mahabua was a contemporary of, of Ajahn Chah, who had the same teacher, uh, Ajahn Man. And he puts it well, he says, this vanishes, that vanishes, but that which knows they're vanishing doesn't vanish. Or to put it more specifically, that which knows they're vanishing doesn't seem to have this quality of vanishing. That sometimes this knowing seems to not have this flavor of coming and going. It's a a peculiar thing that sometimes we get a sense of. I'm not making some philosophical stance about this. I'm not saying awareness is eternal or awareness is infinite. It's just noticing that that at times in this this moments of of meditation that it can have the sense of not coming and going, not marked by that. And again, as I was mentioning, sometimes I play with this around the passive voice. Hearing is being known. 
Hearing is known. Hearing comes and goes. Oh, and then getting a feeling sense of the knowing. Sometimes when I'm practicing walking meditation, going at a regular pace, the same thing. Feeling the body moving in space. And a lot of times what I'll use is movement is being known. The Buddha knowing Dhamma. The Buddha knowing movement. Yet awareness sometimes doesn't have the flavor of movement. It doesn't have the flavor of going somewhere. Or as I was saying about hearing, that a sound can feel like it comes from a certain location. Sometimes hearing doesn't have the flavor of a location to it. It's not marked by a location. It's things to become curious about. Just noticing, noticing this home of awareness, its qualities, its flavors. And it's a tricky home because if you find something that you call your home, then you know that's not it. (laughs) That's just an object of awareness that comes and goes. It's more, as Ajahn Sumedho says, it's more like you get a feeling sense of your eyes. You know your eyes are seen, but you can't see your eyes. But if you spend all your time trying to look around and see your eyes, (laughs) you drive yourself crazy. And in the same way, if you try to look around and see awareness, you're going to drive yourself crazy because you're always missing it. Because it's right here. It's ubiquitous, the knowing quality. It's immediate. I think Joseph uses the phrase, it knows, but it doesn't exist. Just a few things about this too. I invite you to just play around with this just when the mind is more settled to get a sense of the knowing aspect of experience. And sometimes just a few times a day, just easy, gentle. I invite you not to do what I did when I started to become curious about this. (laughs) This is what I did when I started to become sensitive to this. I need to get this. This is where it's at. (laughs) This is the real practice. (laughs) We're finally there. Do you hear what's underneath that? (laughs) The story I began with, a sense of lack, a sense of unworthiness. Oh, that's the real practice. Dang it, I can't do it. And then there's the hook. I share this with you so hopefully you don't don't have as much dukkha as I did (laughs) around the beginning of this. And it's just simply seeing that, oh, oh, interesting, judging grasping, becoming. Sometimes with this perspective, we can slip into getting a sense that this moment is enough. This is enough. Buddha knowing Dhamma right now, that's enough. And then the next moment, Buddha knowing Dhamma, that's enough. And then the next moment, Buddha knowing Dhamma, that's enough. There's no need for a linear path in that kind of story. Just to end with a poem by David White entitled Enough. 
enough. These few words are enough. If not these words, this breath. If not this breath, this sitting here. This opening to the life we have refused again and again until now. Until now. Enough, these few words are enough. If not these words, this breath. If not this breath, this sitting here. This opening to the life we have refused again and again until now. Until now. So let's sit for a few moments.